Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Before we get into Revelation 12, we're talking about dark things. We're talking about things that are a source of uh, sadness in a lot of ways. A source of uh, perhaps discouragement and things involving war and the punishment of the wicked and the judgment of God. Things that inevitably will come upon this country. We live in dark days. Days that are discouraging. Days in which you can't watch the news without there being dismay. But even in the midst of all that, we're exhorted as brethren to comfort one another. I was going to read you that passage out of 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning until Daddy brought it up, so it was apropos. Um, But I just wanted to encourage you before we started this morning. I've been encouraged the last week or two, just a few things I've seen here and there involving random people, random places around the world where despite the direction that this world is going despite the apostasy of the church, God is still at work. And the Word of God still goes out. I was so encouraged to hear that Ricky and Christian were going out in Goa, uh, down in southern India in the beach, meeting Israelis, but they weren't going out alone. Other Christians went out with them. Indians, Koreans, a few others. They were in a group of believers that went out to evangelize. I saw a video from a friend of mine in St. Petersburg, Russia recently where he was preaching from a dock to a cruise ship dock there in the port. Sound gospel being preached in English by a Russian brother that I've never even met face to face. Then yesterday I saw a video clip of just a random guy. I have no idea who he is. Just a random guy. I I couldn't tell if he was black or Hispanic in the video, but he was on a subway train. I think it was New York City. Just surrounded by people pacing up and down the car and preaching a solid gospel. Not shock and awe, not, you know, the, the, the clowns with the, the, the fluorescent uh, shirts and the, all of that stuff, but a solid gospel about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. So these things continue to happen. And I want that to be an encouragement to you. And let's continue to show God's Word because the things we're talking about this morning, they're important to study, they're important to look at, they're important to prepare us for what is to come. But they aren't written of us. They're not written of us. 1 Corinthians 15-51, Paul says, it's the same thing he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Something we are to encourage ourselves with, particularly in times of darkness. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, that Tekiah de Gedola, that trumpet of the Feast of Trumpets. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. This is out of Isaiah 25. O death, out of Hosea 13, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 
but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. The victory. Oh, there's a war. And there's a war coming. Praise be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So despite what we see, despite the politics and the society and uh, the corruption all around, our labor is not in vain if it's in the Lord. And if it's in the, it's in the Lord if we preach the gospel, if we remain steadfast and unmovable, not changing our convictions, not changing our faith with the times. And so, may that be a comfort to you this morning as we slip into things concerning war. The war between Satan and Israel. The war between Satan and the church. God has already given us the victory. And we're not the only ones that are faithful or striving to be faithful. We're not the only ones struggling to be true in these dark days. We're not the only true church. God has a remnant everywhere. And may we never come to the place where we think we are all there is. That's a foolish pathway that leads to pride and destruction. Revelation chapter 12. I transitioned into this last week by speaking a bit about the Ark of the Covenant. It's an appropriate thing to do. Because the Ark concerns Israel. And where we go from here, chapters 12 through 14, I believe, zooms out to highlight the age-old war, spiritual war, a war in heaven between Satan, the dragon, and the promised seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel. That necessarily involves the church during this church age because we are the spiritual seed of Israel. And that's why God, Satan hates us as much as he hates the physical seed of Abraham. There were two things I wanted you to keep in mind as we got into this. There is a spiritual backdrop behind all government. There's a spiritual backdrop behind all war and conflict in society on this earth. It's been that way since the title deed of the earth was given to Satan by Adam in the Garden of Eden. There is a spiritual side. Men do not control themselves. And there's a side that we can't see with the physical eye. But by the Word of God, we can know it. Secondly, Satan hates Israel. You need to remember this as we read these chapters. He wants to obliterate her completely and to extinguish her from the planet. Just like he hates the church. So let's us not be a part of anti-Semitism that plays into Satan's hands. Let's be careful what we say. Sometimes it's hard. I've been in situations trying to show love and to witness to Jewish people and they respond with such hatred and disdain. And it makes me want to express feelings of disgust. But remember, though they are enemies for the Gospel's sake at this present time, Romans says they're beloved because of the election. Let's don't be a part of Satan's strategy. Let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper that love thee. But we get into what's called a parenthesis here doesn't advance the narrative. It's a zoom out, just like we've seen in some other places in the book. And classically, chapters 12 through 14 are referred to 
as the seven personages or the seven main characters of the tribulation. We learn about the sun-clothed woman, the great red dragon, the man-child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, the archangel Michael, the remnant of the seed of Israel, the beast out of the sea, chapter 13, which is Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, which is false prophet. The seven great spiritual or main characters of the tribulation period. This is classically how these chapters are described, and I think there's truth in that. Some could say that chapters 12 and 13 are the unveiling of these seven characters, and chapter 14 would be the epilogue to this unveiling, the victory of the Lamb out of these, out of this saga. Or some have looked at it this way, chapter 12, important characters or heavenly characters of the tribulation. Chapter 13, earthly rulers of the tribulation. And then chapter 14, the ultimate triumph of Christ or the man-child in the tribulation. These are legitimate ways to view these chapters. And we should keep them in mind in terms of context. But there's an interesting word used when we look at these seven main characters, but it's only used for the first two. It's only used for the first two. So there must be something that sets the first two characters, the woman and the dragon, apart from the rest. There must be something that ties the rest of what's described back to these two main characters. There's a word that ought to give us pause. Chapter 12, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. We have that word wonder describes the woman and the dragon. That word doesn't appear again when these other characters are discussed. It comes from a Greek word that means sign or symbol. This is a great symbol that John is seeing. So we know this is a symbol because it says it's a symbol. We're not making something literally that's literally revealed a symbol like the replacement theologian does. We're understanding it's a symbol because the Bible says it is. A great wonder, a sign, a symbol. The woman is called a mega wonder. That word great comes from the Greek word mega or megas, which is from where we get the word mega. Mega is a Greek word. A mega symbol, John says, he sees in heaven. A woman that word mega, it gives an element of wonder. It's, it's one, something that would give you pause. Wait a minute, wow. Enough to give John pause, it should give us pause. And then we get to the dragon and it says it appeared another. That word another comes from a Greek word, another sign, which likens it to the first. So it's after the manner of the first mega symbol John sees. He sees another such symbol. 
And then we have that word mega appear again in verse 3 when he's called a great red dragon. A mega dragon. So John sees two mega symbols. Two wonders. And then we'll see as the chapters progress that these things, these wonders in heaven, these symbols are outworked on the earth. What we are about to read about is the great spiritual conflict between, behind uh, earthly war and tribulation. A spiritual conflict between Israel and the dragon and all the other personages that are described in the following chapters. Everything that happens in this parenthesis through the end of chapter 14 is in relationship, I believe, to these two wonders. These two main players in this spiritual war. The focus here in the parenthesis is the war between Satan and Israel. An unleashed holocaust against the Jew that will far surpass what she has ever seen. The ultimate holocaust against national Israel has not yet taken place. Everything in history, including Nazi Germany, was but a type, but a foretaste. Because there's coming a time after Israel is regathered into the land in unbelief, Jeremiah 30, we've seen that 1948 all the way through today, with countless Jews around the world making aliyah or pilgrimage back to Israel. After that regathering in unbelief, there's a time of Jacob's trouble coming. But, Jeremiah 37, she shall be saved out of it. When you understand that the two main players here are Israel and the dragon. When everything described hereafter in this parenthesis relates to this conflict, when you understand that, you're going to see real easy when we get into chapter, later on in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, you're going to see and understand why there are some interesting little differences between the description of the dragon, which is Satan, and the, dra- or, and the beast, which is Antichrist. Some little differences. Lots of similarities in their descriptions. The differences. So when we understand what the main point or the main focus is, those things will make sense. And I'll get there soon. So the way I want to look at these chapters is the first four verses of chapter 12, we can call this great wars two mega symbols or two wonders. The woman and the dragon. And then in verses 5 through 6, we're going to see what's the underlying cause of this war. What's the reason for it? All wars have underlying causes. In history, in secular history, the victor gets to write the memoirs. And so oftentimes the textbooks reveal biased descriptions of these things written by the victors. That's where most of our, most of our history in American textbooks concerning the Civil War was written by arrogant Yankees. And that's why it's biased doesn't reflect the truth necessarily. All history, man-made history is biased. All of it is. The southerner can be quite biased as well. But God's history is not biased. And what we see here is not biased. It's truth. The underlying cause, verses 5 and 6. And then 7 through 12 of chapter 12, I call this the war's heavenly campaign of battle. 
we see a heavenly campaign of battle. And then we get to chapters 12, verse 13 through 13, 18. This is the war's earthly campaign. On your outline, there's a typo there. I'll give you this outline at the beginning. I said 12, 13 through 14, 20. It's actually 13, 18. And then chapter 14, I call the war's victory campaign. So it's all about that great spiritual conflict between the seed of the woman and Satan. And so John is zooming out and telescoping back in time a bit and showing how it all comes to culmination during this period of time. A great war, a heavenly campaign, an earthly campaign, and a victory campaign. You see, all spiritual war has a spiritual side, spiritual campaign. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That's why we're to arm ourselves, not with physical weapons, the spiritual weapons. But all such foreign temptation also has an earthly campaign or physical campaign. And for the believer, all spiritual war, or even for anyone, there's a victory campaign. Because truth is victorious. Every time. Every time. Truth wins. So, the two main players, verses 1 through 4. This is where we're going to focus today. I've already read these scriptures. Scriptures, but let's look at the, the sun-clothed woman. This first great symbol, this first mega sign that John sees. This is the first wonder. It's the first of the seven personages. And like at other places in Scripture, it's representative. There are four representative women in the book of Revelation. We've seen two of these. Or we've seen one of these already. And the other three are revealed later. The first one is Jezebel. She's representative in the letter to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 of the papal Roman Catholic system that corrupted the church. She's a representative of the paganism that came in to the church. Roman Catholicism, the papal system. In Revelation 17, we're going to see another woman. She's called a great whore. The mother of all harlots. Mystery Babylon. She is representative of apostate religion. Which necessarily includes Roman Catholicism. Because it is the spirit of Babylonian paganism going all the way back to Nimrod and Semiramis and the false religions that arose out of that. Revelation 19, we have a third woman, the bride of Christ. The virgin bride, representative of the church, the redeemed. And here, we have a sun-clothed woman with the moon under her feet and twelve stars on her head. Who is this? The Catholics say it's the Virgin Mary. The mid-tribbers, the mid-tribulation rapture people say it's the visible church. And the man child is the true church, the true believers raptured out. The replacement theology, people say this sun-clothed woman is the church in the world throughout church history. But when we look at this description, when was the church in such a condition as this? Whenever. To be found like this would make her unfit to be the virgin bride of Christ. Paul 
talks about the church in 2 Corinthians 11 as a chaste virgin. Is a chaste virgin prepared to be married a pregnant woman? No, not at all. Nowhere in Scripture is it ever spoken that the church is a mother. Nowhere. Never. The church is never spoken of as the mother. So when the Catholic says God is your father, the church is your mother, they speak pagan misery. The church is not your mother. The church is the bite of Christ and we are all priests in that priesthood. Church never spoken of as a mother. Who is this woman? Who does she represent? Clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Daniel, would you read Genesis 37 verses 9 through 11? Let's go all the way back to Genesis. You see, Revelation ties up all loose ends loosened in the book of Genesis. Here's our answer. Genesis 37, 9 through 11. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the same. Who had this dream? Joseph. Joseph saw the sun and the moon and eleven stars making obeisance to him who was the twelfth star. So who did the brothers and Jacob understand these things to represent? Their family. The sun and the moon. Jacob and Leah who was alive at the time. The twelve stars. The twelve tribes of Israel. And they would all make obeisance to Joseph, who was obviously the twelfth star. How was this fulfilled? Where and when was this fulfilled? In Egypt. God took Joseph into Egypt and raised him up so that he would be the instrument whereby Jacob and his family could be spared the famine, brought to Egypt, and in Egypt the nation of Israel was born out of tribulation. A family became a mighty nation. And so we know based on Joseph's dream, the sun and the moon and the twelve stars are a reference to the family of Jacob. Israel. We go back to Revelation. The sun, the moon, the twelve stars. This sun-clothed woman has a Jewish character. There's no question about that. Also consider that Israel is often spoken of in the Old Testament as a woman married to God under the terms of the Old Covenant. Often referred to as an adulterous wife, not the chaste bride or virgin bride like the church. Let's look at a couple passages. Matthew, Isaiah 54, 1-6. Jim, if you would look up Jeremiah 3, verses 8-13. through 13, And Bob, Hosea 3, verse 1. <clears throat> And just read those as soon as you have it. Sing, O barren, that thou that didst not bear, break forth and sing and cry aloud, thou that thou that didst not prevail, child, 
the more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stake. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt be shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall be, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. So God is speaking here to Israel being restored as, as a restored wife. God says your maker is your husband and that you will be restored. Israel spoken of as a woman, a married woman. Jeremiah 3, 8 through 13. And I saw for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, and I had put her away and given her a deal of divorce, that her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the likeness of her whoredom that she defiled a man and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. Yet for all her treacherous sister Judah had not turned into with her whole heart, but fondly saith the Lord, and the Lord said unto me, Backsliding Israel had justified her, herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to toward the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause thine anger to fall upon thee, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will keep anger forever. Amen. I acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed through the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree and ye have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Okay, so we have Israel and Judah here pictured as not just the wife of Jehovah but the adulterous wife. And God exhorts them to acknowledge their sin. And then in verse 14, He says, exhorts them to turn. and says, For I am married unto you. So Israel, the adulterous wife. This passage is interesting because I think we have the clearest cut definition of repentance in the Bible. Two words. Verse 13, acknowledge. That means acknowledge that you've sinned. And then 14, turn. Acknowledge and turn. That's repentance. And when you have sin in the body of Christ, when you have division because of sin, when relationships broken because of sin, those relationships really never can be restored without repentance. And until someone acknowledges what they've done, how can there be repentance? If we don't acknowledge what we've done, how can we repent? And if we don't turn from it, how can a relationship be restored? Be careful diving back into relationships where there's no repentance because it'll just go back to where it 
came from. And that's a temptation for all of us because we want to see things made right. But until there's repentance, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Anyway, Israel, the adulterous wife of Jehovah. Hosea 3.1 Hosea was commanded by God to take a whore, a prostitute for a wife as a symbol, a sign of God's patience with His adulterous wife, which was Israel, the nation He had chosen. So we have Israel spoken multiple times of as a woman. Okay? An adulterous wife. 1 Corinthians 10.32 is interesting because it reveals to us that there are only three classes of people in the world today. We talk about races and cultures and all of this. There's only one race of people. It's the human race. You know, when we speak of the black race and the white race, we're talking in evolutionary terms. We're using terminology that the forefathers of evolutionary thought who hated the black races coined. So we don't even know it, but we're using racial terminology. We don't even know it. The founders of evolution, the founders of abortion and all of these things in American history hated in what they called quote-unquote inferior races. But the Bible says God made men all of one blood. So there's only one race of people. It's human race. Okay? Um, so I don't even like use, using that terminology. But God classifies the human race... All are men. All are created in the image of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All can be saved by grace through faith. But God classifies men not according to races, but according to class. There are only three classes of people in the world today. 1 Corinthians 10, 22, um, or 10, 32, Paul says to the church, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Three classes of people. Jews, the physical seed of Abraham. Gentiles, all the other nations that are not Jewish. And the church of God. Jew and Gentile, born again by grace through faith into a new identity in Christ. Those are the three classes of people that are on the world today. But after the rapture, only two classes remain. Jew and Gentile. The church is raptured out. So we're at a period in the tribulation where the rapture has taken place. So this woman can't be the church. It can't be the Gentiles because we see in chapter 11, verse 2, that they are the ones who persecute the woman. So who is it? It's the only other class of people there could be. The Jew. National Israel regathered in the land in unbelief and at the point of Jacob's trouble. After Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the church is not mentioned again in the book until the end. But Israel is the focus of Revelation 7. It's out of Israel that God seals 144,000 witnesses. Israel is the focus of chapter 10 when Christ appears on behalf of them not as the priest 
in Revelation 1, but as a mighty angel, just as He appeared on their behalf in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. Israel is the focus of chapter 11. We have the tribulation temple unveiled. The two Jewish witnesses, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testament shown from heaven, all related to Israel in the immediate context. This woman is Israel. National Israel. When we think about the tribulation, the tribulation is a term we get from the study of Revelation. Jesus called the last half of it the great tribulation. What is the tribulation described as in the book of Daniel? What does Daniel call it? What is it also called? What's another name for the tribulation? That's Jeremiah, time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel, the what of Daniel? It's a great prophecy. We talked about it four Sundays in a row. The 70th week of Daniel. It's a prophecy upon thy people and thy holy city. Israel. The tribulation of the 70th week of Daniel concerns Israel. As do the first 69 weeks to accomplish six things that have not come to pass. The church is never mentioned in connection with these last day's events. So the mid-tribber is wrong. The Catholic is wrong. The replacement theologian is wrong. This woman has a Jewish character. It represents Israel. Verse 2, it says that she's travailing in birth. She's about to give birth in pain to be delivered. National Israel is frequently spoken of in Scripture as going through birth imagery travail in the last days. Even the rabbis talk about Messiah's coming as being preceded by, quote-unquote, the birth pangs of the Messiah. Even the, the rabbinic Judaism understands that before Messiah comes, there will be birth pangs in Israel. There are several passages in the Old Testament that speak in these terms. Um, Ronnie, if you'll look up Isaiah 66, 6 through 8. Paul, Jeremiah 36 through 9. Um, Matthew, Micah 5, verses 2 through 3. And Daniel, Zechariah 12, 9, verses thir- through chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah 12, verse 9 through 13, verse 1. So Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 6 through 8. Yes. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice from the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man child. Who had heard such a thing? Who has seen this Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Okay. Here we have Israel spoken of as being in travail. We have Israel spoken of as a woman travailing in birth until she was delivered of a man-child. 
exactly what we're going to see in Revelation 12. The scripture is consistent. doesn't contradict himself. And then in verse 8, we have the great prophecy of the rebirth of modern Israel as a nation in a single day. May 14, 1948. As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. That tells us that all of these things will culminate not long after Israel is regathered into a nation. Some say that the generation that saw them regathering into the land will be the same generation that sees Christ come back. I don't know for sure if that's true. It makes sense based on some things Jesus said. But that generation is coming to an end soon. People that were born in that year um, you know, are getting pretty old right now. So we'll see if that comes to pass. But going into... Um, Verse 9, God says, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? So God's asking the rhetorical question, will I bring them into the land and not cause them to wake up and see their Messiah? And the answer is no. They came to the land. God's going to complete what He started. But we have a, a travailing woman used to describe Israel. Jeremiah 36 through 9. We've already talked about this, but let's read it again. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that great for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, and I will raise up unto them. So, I will raise up unto them. So here we have the tribulation period that... <coughs> Super, that, that takes place after the regathering in the land, verse 3. And it's spoken of as being as a woman. Even the men will be like a woman in birth because of the terrible birth pangs that must take place in tribulation. A time of Jacob's trouble. So much so that even the men will put their hands on their loins like if they're a woman travailing to birth. But God will save Israel out of it. Once again, that woman waiting to be delivered of a child. There's a famous Christmas passage that's also related to this. We often think about it as talking about the birth of Christ, an amazing prophecy given before His birth, long before His birth, telling us where He would be born. But there's more involved. Micah 5, 2, and 3. Now Bethlehem Ephrathah, the thou... Be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. So we have a prophecy of Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born, he would come and be born. This Messiah would be ruler in Israel. He's eternal. He is God because His goings forth have been from old from everlasting. So when the rabbi says that the Old Testament nowhere talks about Messiah as being God, 
just like the Jews in Herod's day, they forgot to read Micah 5 too. They didn't know where he'd be born. Whose goings forth can be from of old, from everlasting, unless it's God. But there's apparently an interval between the time in which Christ is born and the time in which He actually rules over Israel. Because it says in verse 3, Therefore will He, that is this ruler of Israel, this Messiah, give them up. He'll be born, He's born to be the ruler, but He'll give them up until the time that she, those over whom He rules, which travails, has brought forth. Then the remnant of His brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. So there's an interval between the rejection and the return of the king. Okay? And the return happens only after she which travails brings forth. Remember in Hosea, Jesus won't come back till Israel calls for him. Therefore, I will return unto my place until they acknowledge my iniquity. Then I'll come back. So the ruler of Israel was born in Bethlehem, but, but he gave them up. Until she which travails, a woman in birth, brings forth. Zechariah 12, 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have feared, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Negeon, and the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. In that day... There shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Okay, so here we, we talk about a day when uh, God will intervene to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And it's a day when Israel will look upon me, God speaking, whom they have pierced. That was Jesus on the cross was God. Me, not Him like the modern versions read in this passage, but me whom they have pierced. And there will be great mourning in the land. Travail, mourning, bitterness, the things that come with the travail of birth. But a fountain will be opened and there will be washing from the sin and uncleanness cleanness of Israel. So we have this imagery, this birth pangs of Messiah revealed multiple places in the Old Testament. We go to the New Testament, Jesus speaks of these last days as times of travail. In Matthew chapter 24, in his Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 24 verse 8, All these are the beginnings of sorrows. 
when he talks about many will come in my name and say I am Christ and will deceive many. I don't remember how many. Many have come and claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And they've all died. I don't remember exactly how many they followed. Wars, rumors of wars, be not troubled. These things must come to pass. Remember Jesus is talking to Jews. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine, pestilences, earthquakes, divers places. These are the beginning of sorrows. Mark 13 says the same thing. That word sorrows is the Greek word odion, which are pains associated with childbirth. That's what that word means. It's a word used in Greek to talk about the sorrow or pain of childbirth. So Jesus consistently refers to these things as the beginnings of travail, travail that will come upon Israel. What we see today is just a beginning. Just a beginning. Who is Jesus speaking to? Obviously His disciples. He's speaking to Jews. You cannot overlook or deny the Jewish context of the Gospels. You can't overlook that. You've got to ask who is He speaking to and keep that in mind. When you overlook those things, you're going to get in trouble in Hebrews chapter 6. You're going to get in trouble in Hebrews chapter 10. You're going to start thinking you can lose your salvation because you ignore who the author was writing the epistle to. You're going to get in trouble in Acts chapter 2 because you're going to ignore the fact that it was a Jew preaching to Jews. We cannot deny that context. That's bad hermeneutics. The hermeneutics is how we interpret the Scriptures. It's a word, fancy word we use to describe that. And when we deny the context, who's being spoken to, why they're being spoken to, all of these things, we're going to get into trouble. We can't do that here. Can't do it in Matthew chapter 24 either. The woman is national Israel. The nation of Israel, the Jew. Is there any question about that? Not in my mind. Not after reading those passages. And this entity, national Israel, truly is a great wonder. A miracle of history. The nation of Israel and its preservation throughout time, despite untold numbers of attempts to extinguish her, is a miracle of history. It's a miracle. I saw an interesting t-shirt in a shop in Jerusalem that uh, it was kind of funny. It listed... It was like a list of nations, and it was like Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Nazi Germany, and it was just like X's beside of them. And then, then below it, it was like Iran, Russia, and some others with a question mark. And it's something about, you know, look what happened to all these nations that tried to mess with us, and uh, what's going to happen. I don't remember exactly, but it was kind of funny talking about how these powerful nations that tried to persecute the nation of Israel went into the dustbin of history. But when we consider God's preservation of the people of Israel, there really are four things that the Scriptures specifically say God preserves. And because God preserves them, man or Satan cannot erase or destroy them. It's impossible. Despite repeated attempts to do so. Let's look at a few passages. Uh, let's see here. Bob, will you look up Nehemiah 9 verse 6? Um, Jim, Psalm 12 verses 6 and 7. Paul, if you'll look up Matthew 16, 18. 
And Graham, if you'll look up Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. 49, 5 and 6. So there, there are four things the Scripture says God specifically preserves. Let's see what they are. Nehemiah 9, 6. Bob, you got to get a little faster with this Bible drill now. Creation. God preserves creation for His purposes. Now we know He will destroy the present creation and create a new heaven and a new earth, but He will do it. So because God preserves this creation, man, through fossil fuel usage, through failure to recycle, through nuclear proliferation, cannot and will not destroy the planet. We are quite arrogant to think that our activity could actually destroy what God has made. Now God may allow us to be part of bringing about, about His purposes, but He is the one that preserves this earth. He'll even preserve it through the tribulation so that Christ can return and reign upon it. So despite all the war, despite all the attempts to destroy this earth, it'll still remain... And Christ will reign on it for a thousand years. God preserves His creation. Man will not, cannot destroy it. I don't care how many nuclear weapons there are. What else does God preserve specifically? Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, Thou shalt preserve them from his generations forever. What else does God preserve? His words. Is it his word or his words? His words. Not the message, not the general idea, the words of God. Even the, y the y jots and the tittles, the yods and the vobs in the Hebrew alphabet. God preserves his words. So despite Satan's attempts to counterfeit God's words, despite men's attempts to erase the Bible and God's words from history, God preserves it. And if we believe that, we can believe and rest assured that what we have preserved for us by God in the English language and blessed by Him for more than 400 years is His words. Now there may be modern Bibles out there that contain the Word of God, but I believe based upon the testimony of history, the testimony of the Greek and Hebrew text tradition behind it, that the King James Bible is the words of God preserved for us in the English language, which God in His sovereignty knew would be the international language of the end times. Is there any doubt about that? Amen. God preserves His words. If you want to read from a modern English Bible, that's fine. But if I'm going to go into battle 
with powers and principalities. I'm not going to carry a carving knife. I'm going to carry a double-edged broadsword. Do what you will. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And the only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Don't carry uh, a wooden spoon into battle when you can have a broadsword. 66 caliber black back. God preserves the creation. God preserves His words. What else does He preserve? Matthew 16, 18. And I say also unto thee, Thou shalt thou, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What else does God preserve? His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God preserves it. He preserves it from its founding at Pentecost and He will preserve it unto the rapture. It doesn't matter how dark these days are. It doesn't matter how corrupt the visible church has become. God preserves His true church. There is always a remnant and it's not just us. There are those that have sat amongst us in times past that would have claimed to be that perhaps have shown the signs that they are. But God has a remnant. The true church cannot be destroyed or erased. It doesn't matter what ISIS is doing to Christians in ancient Assyria, uh, where ancient Assyria was or in Egypt. God's true church will remain. He preserves it. No one can destroy it. And then finally, what else does God unquestionably preserve for His purposes? Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. Okay, thank you. This passage is talking about Messiah, the servant of God, Jesus, the Lord who formed him from the womb to be his servant, God manifest in the flesh. Though Israel was not gathered, though they wouldn't recognize him when he came, he would be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and God would be his strength. And he wouldn't come just to raise up the tribes of Jacob or restore the what? preserved of Israel. Israel is preserved. But He would also be a light to the Gentiles to declare God's salvation to the end of the earth. So Messiah came, or Messiah is there to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. Why? Because Israel is preserved. But He's also a light to the Gentiles. That's why Jesus made His ministry base not in Jerusalem, his ministry base was in Galilee of the Gentiles. Capernaum, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, that port town. Why? Because it was the gateway to the Gentiles. It was the route you know, along the old road to Damascus where people trans, 
uh, traversed the land, going down into Africa from Europe and Asia. Jesus based his ministry there for a reason. There's another verse that talks about those tribes there, Zebulun and Naphtali, seen a light in times of darkness. It wasn't just a random city. Jesus was not just come to restore the preserved of Israel, which he will fully and finally do at his second coming, but to be a light to the Gentiles on an interesting side note. So God preserves creation, his words, the church, and the people of Israel. They are preserved. This woman, as we'll see in this great war in chapter 12, God protects her. He preserves her despite Satan's attempts to destroy her. She is preserved. The sun-clothed woman, the great wonder in heaven, the first personage. Then we get to verses 3 and 4. And John says, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Another mega sign. And behold, a great red dragon. So our second personage, our second wonder is the dragon. And there's no question that this dragon is Satan. No question. All you got to do is go down to verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. So it's identified for us. We don't have to argue about it. And what's interesting is finally, all the way at the end of the Bible, the serpent in the Garden of Eden is named. He's never named until Revelation 12 verse 9. We assume it's Satan, but he's not called that in Genesis. He's not called the devil. But we know now beyond question that the old serpent in the Garden of Eden is Satan, the devil, the great red dragon. So that's where Satan, the serpent's actually named all the way here in Revelation 12 verse 9. So you have the Bible at two ends tying itself together. A great red dragon that word great, megas, great, awe-inspiring. This links what John sees with the woman, another great wonder. Two mega-wonders. All other personages described will be as of their relationship to these two. The word dragon comes from the Greek drakon. Dragon. That's where we get the word dragon. It's a Greek word. The Greek word actually comes from a a verb that has to do with the action of seeing. It's kind of an idiomatic derivation of a verb that means to look at or to gawk at. To do a, a double take. Whoa! That's where the word comes from. And so what it means is a serpent or some sort of reptile that evokes a double take. That evokes wonder. Whoa! Wow! What John saw was a great red dragon. A dragon is an English word from a Greek word that sounds just like it, that comes from a Greek verb that means to look with wonder or to gawk. A serpent that evokes wonder. I often get mocking questions when I'm preaching the gospel on the streets or the college campus, and one I hear a lot is, well, what about the dinosaurs? There weren't dinosaurs in the Bible. Oh, yes, they were. They were called dragons. The word dinosaur wasn't coined until 1841, and it's taken from two Greek words, danos, which means terrible, 
and sauros, which means lizard. It just means terrible lizard. Well, what was a great terrible lizard called before it was called a dinosaur? It was called a dragon. A serpent that causes wonder. A terrible lizard. That's how Satan's described here. That's what John sees. John sees a great red dinosaur in heaven. Now, there is plenty of extra-biblical written history, archaeology, and eyewitness accounts going way back in time, all the way up through accounts from America's Old West, that show that dinosaurs, or dragons, and man have always existed together. Written history, archaeology, and eyewitness accounts. That's another topic for another day. The Bible is confirmed by written history. Archaeology and eyewitness accounts. can't say that about evolution. There is no eyewitness account of evolution. There is no evolution in archaeology. And what they claim to see in the fossils is just one big circular argument based upon a preconceived notion concerning the age of the earth. In the book of Revelation, the word dragon is used to describe Satan 13 times. In the Old Testament Hebrew, dragon comes from a Greek word. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is what? Does anybody know? Leviathan. Leviathan, the piercing serpent. Look up Isaiah 27 verse 1. We often think of the Leviathan mentioned in Job as just some reptile creature. Some versions call it a crocodile. No, 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 no. It's far greater than that. Isaiah 27.1 In that day, and this is immediately after God says He will come out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. In that day, when God comes out of His place, the Lord with His sore and great strength and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. Who is Leviathan? That piercing serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. What is a dragon in the New Testament is Leviathan in the Old. Leviathan, the piercing serpent. Satan, the great red dragon. The Leviathan. Now, I'm going to stop here today, but next week I would like for you to prepare by looking at the um, let's see, yeah, looking at Job chapter 41. In Job chapter 41, God challenges Job. He challenges him in those last chapters by reminding him of all the great and wonderful things he is able to do in creation that Job can't even understand to show that Job... Is in, is in self-righteousness and needs to humble himself and trust Him. And one of the last cases God makes to Job doesn't concern just an animal or an object of creation. It concerns Leviathan himself. Leviathan himself. Job 41 describes for us the same entity that John describes for us in Revelation chapter 12. Satan, the dragon. So, just meditate on that this week, and we'll come back and talk about the dragon again next Sunday. He is a formidable foe, yet he's made 
a created being. And in the end, He is God's to do with what He pleases.